welcome to the Radio Democracy Podcast. My name is Mark Jacobson. I'm Jim Lutis. And I'm Evelyn Farkas. We are three friends who met in the year 2000 on a trip to Germany sponsored by the German Marshall Fund and the German government. We drank at least 10 beers over 10 days, probably 10 beers each day, and discussed democracy and security issues with other young national security wonks. Back then, we took democracy in America, Europe, and around the world for granted, and assumed it would always prevail over its autocratic alternatives. 21 years later, we are still wonks, though we don't travel on as many boondoggles, and we may not even be able to have a beer a night without getting sleepy. But we do care about democracy, and we are embarking on this podcast to try and bring you a sense of the urgency of the struggle. It's 3.45 p.m. in New York, 8.45 p.m. in London, and 4.45 a.m. in Tokyo. Whatever time it is, wherever you are, this is Radio Democracy. And we're here this week to talk about love. <laughs> I, I was thinking about love this week because I was thinking about democracy, and I'm not being cheesy. Really, so again, I'm Jim Lutis, and over the last couple of weeks, we've focused on some of the dangers to democracy uh, and really, we, we're scratching the surface when it comes to this stuff. Uh, but I'm also interested in celebrating why democracy is worth fighting for. Why, despite all the flaws in politics inherent in democracy, it's still the best way to govern society. So this is my love letter to my favorite means of governing. And if you know me, you know I'm going to start with a little history lesson. So... Democracy in the West emerged from the scientific and philosophical revolutions that followed the Dark Ages, that era in European history when the light of learning was nearly extinguished and states with central governments rose in the form of monarchies. Interestingly, it was the Crusades and the seizure of the library at Alexandria in Egypt that brought back to the West the lost knowledge of the ancient Greek and Roman experiences with democracy. In the early modern era, strong European states came to dominate the globe. They were organized around a belief that sovereignty, a word that simply means the authority or the power to govern, is granted by God in heaven. This was the era of the divine right of kings and a belief that the state existed to serve the will of the monarch. Now, there's a lot of interesting history that we could unpack here. Uh, but the American and French revolutions were built on a fundamentally new view of sovereignty. The authority to govern did not descend from the heavens. It was granted from the people. In other words, the source of sovereignty is not God. It is the people who are governed, who grant a revocable power to govern to leaders in each election. These are and were revolutionary thoughts, and from them, grow what we today refer to as liberal democracy. So what does that mean? First, it means that governments don't exist to serve the individual interests of the leader. In the era of divine right monarchies, the state and the monarchy were one and the same. If the state got wealthier, the royal family got wealthier. Even the economic system prevalent in European monarchies at the time, mercantilism, was predicated on increasing the wealth of the state, meaning the wealth of the royal family. So in a democracy, we upend that power dynamic. The state with its temporary leader serves the sovereign people. Second, and relatedly, the purpose of government changes when we reorder who or what is sovereign. As I mentioned, the state in early modern Europe existed essentially to gain wealth for the royal family. 
In the modern Western experience, we organize governments to protect liberties. In fact, we even wrote that into our Declaration of Independence. That means the rights of citizens. This is the foundation of freedom. It says that we are going to organize all of society to protect the individual liberties of individual citizens. This approach to governing is built on a great skepticism of the goodwill and judgment of any individual. Yes, there could be good kings and even good queens, something that philosophers referred to as enlightened despotism, but they still would sit atop a system that was designed to serve them. Now, once we clear away the notion that the state should serve an individual leader's personal interests, you can do away with mercantilism and embrace a true freedom agenda, free markets, free trade, and free labor. In other words, capitalism emerges as the dominant economic system for the entire planet in tandem with the rise of free elections and participatory politics. Admittedly, I am painting with an incredibly broad brush here, and there's lots of complexity and history that I'm, that I'm glossing over. But healthy democracies, to the extent that they reflect institutions built to serve the people, have shown remarkable resilience in the face of challenges from authoritarian alternatives, such as communism, fascism in the 20th century, and a commitment to the rule of law, progress, and yes, even social justice. Democracy is essential to human flourishing. We celebrate it because it makes possible the political and economic freedoms that have defined the American experience and the broad success of the so-called West. We work to improve democracy because we know that it is a human construct and therefore it is imperfect. And we defend democracy because it keeps the sovereign, the people at the center of governing. Yasha Mank and his colleagues have documented the decline of democracy's appeal around the world. People in the West born in each decade after World War II demonstrate a progressively greater willingness to consider anti-democratic approaches to governing. This doesn't break down on a left-right divide. It falls on all of us who, late in the evolution of our experiment with democracy, have forgotten or perhaps take for granted why we fell in love in the first place. So, Ev, what am I missing? Well, I think um, what you're missing, I would say, I never like to say you're missing anything, Jim. You know, I'll Thank get you, in Ev. trouble. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> but, but, but if I could say one thing, I would say civil society. Um, so what makes democracy so vibrant and so special, especially, especially, especially in America, is that we have a strong civil society. So in many democracies where there's a strong civil society, you have a strong democracy. What do I mean by civil society? Those are the the non-governmental organizations. They can be religious organizations, churches, temples, synagogues. They can be um, tr you know, trade organizations. They can be uh, sports groups. The whole host of non-governmental organizations that balance the power of the state. They push back against the state. It doesn't necessarily include corporations, although, as I said, it can include people who have the interests of corporations or workers at the heart, um, but it's really more kind of civil society. What is people as individuals getting together to represent their interests, their passions, and to push back against the government, which tries to restrict their ability perhaps to exercise those interests. So 
I think civil society is missing kind of from that discussion. The other thing is, of course, there's lots of different kinds of democracy. You did, you did point to that when you said we're always working to improve our democracy. Yeah. And democracy is better in certain countries than others. It's been better in America at different points of time. And it's up to civil society to push against, back against government, against the politicians to help improve that society. That's why you have things like protests and demonstrations. That's why you have lobbying, you know, nonprofits lobby, pro of course, corporations lobby as well. So you have a dynamic that pushes and pulls to get government to be better, to get democracy to be better, and also to improve the capitalist system, which you mentioned, which you know we sort of assume goes with democracy um, because there is a the liberal capital mar markets require a certain degree of freedom, right? But not complete unfettered freedom. Well, you, you know, I, when, when I think about this, you know, the, we use a lot of sort of fancy words to basically say the people's voice is heard. You know, I used to, I used to, when I worked up on the Hill, I used to sit in Senator Kennedy's uh, uh, conference room and he had a big poster from one of his campaigns in the seventies. And it said sort of this, this, this august line in winter sort of photograph of him. And it said, his voice is heard. And I thought, you know, that's really sort of a great sort of late 20th century campaign thing. But the key thing about democracies is that everyone's voice is supposed to be heard. It's yeah. not up to an individual progressive enlightened leader to do the will of the people. The people do their own work as expressed at the ballot box. And that's the promise of democracy. You know, it's interesting yeah. you raise this issue of, of the people's voice being heard, whether it's from the left or from the right, there, there are folks out there who feel their voices aren't being heard or, or they may have opinions uh, that are not uh, in line with uh, left-wing or right-wing orthodoxy that are therefore, uh, God, I hate to say the word canceled because that's not what I mean, but they don't have the opportunity to do it. I mean, there, there is a, I think there's a freedom of speech crisis on most of Americans' college campuses. I, but at the same time, I also think a lot of people feel, well, freedom of speech is what we believe it should be. And, and any sort of minority group doesn't really get the opportunity uh, to speak up. Yeah, if I could jump in on that, because the other point I wanted to make is that I think we've had this kind of um, fundamentalism in politics now, you know, that, that, th that I'm right and you're wrong, and therefore we can go to extreme measures to protect you from your wrongness and protect the rest of society. And that's where you get into, whether it's the left or the right, autocratic solutions. And I think the other point I wanna make, because I wanna make sure it does not get lost here because I'm the child of people who grew up in communism. I went and visited my grandparents under the totalitarian communist system in Hungary. Um, people today, kids, especially young people today, they have no idea what the alternative looks and feels like, unless they're recent immigrants from you know, uh, uh, Burma. And what, and what, and, and what do you give up? Right. I mean, there was, there was a whole movement in the United States in the 1930s uh, that celebrated the efficiency and the accomplishments of the German miracle. Right. And they were talking about Adolf Hitler and the national socialists in Germany in the 1930s. It exposed, it, it ignored a whole host of really horrible things that were beginning from the, that were starting from the very beginning of that regime because it seemed like it was efficient in responding to something that was happening globally. 
you know, I don't want to go too far off on tangent, but let's say there's a certain ex-president who's uh, being quoted in a new book is talking about the uh, uh, Hitler did a lot of good things. And that, that, that's a, a myth that a lot of fascists would like you to believe. Uh, but at what cost? Well, genocide and uh, frankly, taking away uh, well, rights for everyone else. You know, the, the demos in democracy, right, is we're talking about the people, right? And this is the thing. It, does a society serve a party? Does a society serve uh, a governing family or a governing clan? Or does a society serve the very constituents that make it what it is? And, and the promise of democracy is to give voice to all of those different people, all of those different members of that political community uh, to help make the decisions about whether or not you go to war or whether or not you pay taxes or whether or not you do all the things that we order through government in our society. It's the role of the people and the value of the people that I think is is the defining characteristic of democracy. Well, and, and democracy, and this is for both of you. I mean, Evelyn, you've run for office. Jim, you've worked on the Hill. The people's voice is exercised through voting, you know, through being involved. What, where I think where things don't are don't seem to but be on uh, good just, ground today. Yeah, but it's not just voting. It, and I think this is what's important. Democracy is a process. And it's a process, again, you know, when I talked about civil society, it's a process of different people with different perspectives and different interests every day engaging in the political arena, trying to make sure that the state doesn't dictate for everyone what we can and cannot do, trying to carve out some space for individual rights and even group rights. And ultimately, this process oftentimes can result in debate. It can result, as I said, in protests. It can make people uncomfortable. And what you see with the fascists is, and the fundamentalists, whether it's from the right or the left, is this certainty that they know what the answers are and this fear of debate, this fear of any kind of uncertainty and this interest in security above all else. Well, in a, in a willingness to impose their interpretation of right on you, right? That That's where, that's where, we really start talking about the loss of individual freedoms, right? And, and, and that is, is what I find so, um, it's always lost in the fine print, as it were, of the, the promise from authoritarians and would-be authoritarians, is that, yeah, uh, we're going to cut down on crime, but at what cost? Or, yeah, we're going to fight communism, but at what cost? And that cost is always a human cost. Can I ask you something? Do, do either of you self-censor? When it comes to, to Twitter, particularly or, or social media or something public, particularly when, when you're trying to show nuance um, and are worried about running afoul of, of, of orthodoxies and let's say our own party. I aspire not to, but I know that there are times where I've, I've thought twice about something I was going to send. Yeah, I, I, I worry a little bit only because there is nuance with all of this. There, there's, it's, it's not black and white. It's not, uh, it's not uh, binary. And it's, and it's I hard worry to, we're losing that. It's hard to get complexity into 280 characters or whatever it is on Twitter, right? I mean, the, the, you could do a multi-tweet thread, but you, know, you could say something very easily misinterpreted in a single tweet. Yeah, and the other thing is there's no edit button. Nope. Um, so, I mean, I think we all look, it's not a bad thing to self-censor. We shouldn't say the first thing that comes into right or type the first thing that comes into our head. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't have a problem with, with self-censoring, uh, but I, I think, I think what's, what's difficult right now is that people do not appreciate the alternative to democracy. 
we all can agree. I mean, okay, maybe Jim is in love with democracy. Um, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm in love with democracy, but it, I'm clinging on to democracy for dear life because well, the, the alternative? alternative is scary. It's war, it's competition, economic, political, and otherwise. Just think back to, you know, all of the, the international order that was established, which isn't a democratic one per se, but it's, but it gives a voice, it gives an outlet, and it sets up certain rules internationally even. I'm, I'm mindful of Churchill, right? Uh, yeah. Democracy is the worst of all possible ways of governing, except for all the others. The least, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we're not going to do any better than Churchill. So, uh, <laughs> well, it's about that time here at Radio Democracy for our lightning round, uh, where each of us will identify the top story of the week that suggests something about the health of our democracy. So, uh, Jim, uh, since you're leading this week, let, let's go over to you for your story. Well, so I'm going to continue my little love affair with democracy. I don't care what Evelyn says. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I was struck by a news report uh, in uh, Bloomberg this week about a, a, a diplomat from the Philippines who uh, was extolling the virtues of America's response to the pandemic. And other, basically what he said was that, you know, the pandemic is still raging in parts of the United States, but around the world, it's even worse than it is in the United States. And he looked at the rapid development, procurement, and distribution of vaccines in the United States and said, this is what a free society can accomplish. And look, there are lots of faults and lots of problems with the way our vaccine rollout goes and, can, and has frankly begun to sputter. Uh, but there is no doubt about the vitality of science and corporations working together in the United States that rolled out vaccines in rapid order uh, and that have been to the benefit of the entire world. So I agree with that. And I'm just going to jump in, Mark, without prompting, because actually my story of the week um, also was on the pandemic, which um, let's just remind listeners, um, it's still ongoing um, here in, in the middle of July. Um, in the United States of America and around the world. It's, of course, even under less control, as Jim said, around the world. But there's a huge divide in the United States between those who believe in science and leaders in those states who believe in science and have made sure that the citizens in those states get vaccinated. And I'm going to be really explicit here. I mean, it's basically blue states. And we have several states, Arkansas, Missouri, Texas, and Nevada, where there's a huge uptick in hospitalizations, including young people, including infants, they've said, because of the Delta variant, which is now on the loose. And all of these people that who are following the words of their leaders who are denying science are putting themselves at risk, but they're also putting the United States and the world at risk because the Delta variant is surely not gonna be the last variant and we will not achieve herd immunity if the, if the majority of Americans or whatever it is, 70 plus percent of Americans don't get vaccinated. So this is a real failure, I would say of democracy that is only working effectively for part of America right now. Evelyn, I'll, I'll pile on to that because my story this week is that uh, the Tennessee Department of Health will halt all adolescent vaccine outreach, not just for coronavirus, but all diseases amid pressure from Republican state lawmakers. If so, if the health department must issue any information about vaccines, staff are instructed to strip the agency logo off the documents. In other words, taking off the validity 
uh, of the message itself. So no more reminders for teens for their second dose of the coronavirus vaccine. No more information for teens on flu shots or any other vaccine. And this isn't partisan politics before people. This is pure idiocy. In fact, I was trying to find a word that means idiocy times 10. Uh, really, attitudes like this uh, put the our German entire word. nation at risk. Yes, there, there must be a German word somewhere <laughs> for that. I just want to go back for a second to the, the point that I was making in my essay about democracy and the political revolutions in the West emerging from the scientific and uh, philosophical revolutions in the early modern era. You know, there's, a, there's long been a critical tension between progress and science, right, and, and those who would oppose it. And what we're seeing play out in this unique form of populist politics in the United States and increasingly around the world at this moment in the 21st century is this critical tension uh, between a belief in what science can do for us and what science means as a, as, as a question of identity. And so people who feel their identity threatened by progress and modernity feel threatened by the vaccine, feel threatened by the promise of science and technology. And that's something we're going to have to resolve if we're going to, if we're going to continue to renew and preserve our democracy uh, in the years ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. Um, and it, it really, the, the health of our climate, the future of humankind depends upon it. Yeah, I think this is right. It, it's, uh, what is it, Hofstetter uh, who wrote about the anti-intellectualism of, of American society? Uh, you know, and of course we have uh, Tom Nichols who's uh, written the book uh, about the death of expertise. I, but, but this adds a twist to it. This means if you believe in science, therefore you must be super liberal. If you reject science, it bolsters your credentials as someone who's conservative when the reality it should have, well, it should have nothing to do with it and it does have nothing to do with it, but, but we've created this in, in a uniquely American way. Um, and, and bottom line is it's gonna cost lives. And with that, we're out of time, but thankfully democracy is not. Thank you all for listening and join us again for the next episode of Radio Democracy. It's 4.05 p.m. in New York, 9.05 p.m. in London, and 5.05 a.m. in Tokyo. Whatever time it is, wherever you are, this is Radio Democracy.